Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 91. Well, thanks for joining me. Today we are speaking with Marie Brewer, discussing her role in the splash study performed at her facility with the Ofsted Group. Great information that just reinforces the need for adequate personal protective equipment. But before we talk to Marie, let's get into the segment, What's On My Mind? So let's talk about what's on my mind. All right. So if you are not familiar with the segment, what's on my mind, this is where I get to talk about something that I find interesting or just a topic that I want to talk about, kind of point my own point of view to it. So what's on my mind? All right. Recently, I was uh, perusing the HSPA Insights issue uh, number 79. It always has some good content in it. It comes by email. Uh, If you get it, go check it out. If you don't get it, a good way to get it is become a member. So again, I was perusing the insights and came across an article from the Austed group titled, The Utility of Lighted Magnification of Flexible Endoscopes. Great article. Uh, You should go check it out in that insights. In the insights, you can access the article free via the link that is provided in the insights article. It's all provided to you. Now, I'm not going to discuss the specific article today, but I think it would make for a good podcast down the road. Okay. So what I really do want to talk about is some of the conversations that I've had uh, pertaining to boroscopes. Now, it's been a few years since these conversations. You know, a lot has changed in the past couple years. But I thought these statements were a little ridiculous then. And I hope that as time has passed, that the folks I was talking to, some physicians, some not, uh, the folks that made these statements have had a change of heart over the years. So one of the first statements was, It's not necessary to use a boroscope to look inside lumens. We haven't needed them in the past, and we don't need them now. Wow. You know, what a statement, right? You know, if I had it my way, I would have invited that special guest, we've always done it that way, Willie Ray, to answer this question. But unfortunately, I've been told that Willie Ray is not welcome back on the show. And that's a real shame. But it's probably for the best. 
So this statement is absolutely absurd to me. Now, I agree that there was a time when we didn't have the technology that we have today. In fact, you know, I remember working in a surgery center as a surgical technician. You know, we would be assigned to work the GI procedure room. And then, you know, throughout the day and afterwards, as a surgical technician, you know, we would clean and process endoscopes. Okay, so we did that instead of the central service personnel. But boroscopes were not available then. So, you know, the flushing and brushing until there's no debris left, you know, that was how you cleaned it. That's how you were taught. Was the scope clean? You know, I have no idea. I followed the IFUs. So, yeah, it was clean to the best of my knowledge, right? But after looking at some recent studies, you know, I'm not so sure now. You know, now I would say those scopes probably weren't as clean as they could have been or they weren't as clean as I thought they should, you know, as I thought they were. But guess what? We have boroscopes now. We have the technology now. So the absurd statement is that we used to do it and there were no problems. Well, that argument's no longer valid. Right? We have the technology and we should use it. So there is a lot of emphasis on cleaning the endoscope, right? The flexible endoscope, your duodenoscopes, right? In fact, I've heard uh, folks, physicians, and some of their main talking points are if the technician would clean the scope correctly, then there wouldn't be any issues. You know, cleaning is the problem, not high-level disinfection. In fact, if the scopes were cleaned correctly, then we wouldn't even have conversations about sterilization over high-level disinfection. Right, so they, they, they strongly feel that it, cleaning is the problem and it kind of stops there. Okay, if cleaning is so important, if cleaning is the only problem, if cleaning will fix everything, then why wouldn't you want a boroscope? Seems logical to me. Why wouldn't you want a boroscope used on every scope to visualize the channels, the areas that can't be seen? It it just doesn't make sense to me. There is so much importance on cleaning the outside of the scope but not the inside of the scope. And that just seems insane to me. You know, I, I feel like sometimes when we have these conversations that, you know, has the world gone mad? Why would we focus our efforts so much on the outside and, and just leave flushing and brushing to the inside and not even want to look to see? Just doesn't make sense to me. It boggles my mind. Maybe you, maybe you have the answer. I, I hope you do, but I, I don't. That, that thinking just seems crazy to me. I want to show you something else. So in the standards, if you look up visual inspection in the standards, you're going to find this statement, and it's going to say, endoscope, accessories, and equipment should be visually inspected and evaluated for 
and it lists some things. Now, words are very important when you're talking about standards. So, in this statement, visual inspection should. Now, should is used to express uh, a recommendation, okay? Should is one of the more stronger words. It kind of goes in this order. Must. Must means that this is more like a law, something outside of the standards, um, like an OSHA law. When you go to talk about bloodborne pathogen stuff, there's OSHA laws. Those are must statements when you see them in the standards. Then there's a shall. The shall is something that is expressed as a requirement, something the standard is requiring you to do. And then we have should, and should is expressed as a recommendation. I, I kind of look at it like uh, there are several different things you can do, but this specific document, the should, says you should do these things, and these are the recommendations for the standard. So the should here is when you're visually inspecting cleanliness, looking for missing parts. These are all the things you evaluate. Clarity and integrity of the lenses, integrity of seals and gassets, uh, looking for moisture, physical or chemical damage, cracks, peeling, buckling, stretching, function, broken bending sections, kinks, angulation, ability to focus, changes in the endoscope appearance. This is really saying these are visual inspections. Unless you're using a boroscope, you can't visualize some of these items, right? So does boroscope fall under this section? Well, it doesn't say specifically. It just says visual inspection. And really when I interpret that, I, I'm interpreting that to be on the outside, unfortunately. But then we go to cleaning verification. So here we have uh, the standards and it says that high risk endoscopes shall be evaluated with cleaning verification tests after each use. So again, we have the shall here, and the shall again express a requirement of the standard. So the, the highest recommendation in the standard, uh, right below the must, which is really external, right? So we have shall is a requirement of the standard. So pretty strong language here, but just high risk scopes, not all scopes. And then we come to boroscopes. So and this is where I'm getting to my point here. Boroscope inspection. If we look in the standards, it says the internal channels of flexible endoscopes that are accessible can be inspected by a boroscope or other appropriate inspection methods. Can. Okay, so now we have a can. It's not a must. It's not a shall. It's not a should. It's a, a can. And what is can? Can is used as a statement of possibility or capability. So essentially, the standard says you can use it, but you don't have to use it. You know, it says that uh, the can is just essentially saying using a boroscope, it's a possibility. You know, if you can use it, that's, that's great. But, you know, that's about as strong as we're going to get. So I guess cleaning is important, but only on the outside right? Cleaning is only important on the outside. Uh, the inside, you know, again, I guess we're going back to brush and flush because you can do it, but you don't have to. It's a possibility. Sure. 
All right, whatever. I guess I guess that's how it's going to be. So very interesting. All right, here's another gem. The boroscope costs too much. Now, one argument to counteract this statement of the boroscope costs too much usually um, is, well, one infection costs way more than a boroscope. Yeah, you know, this is true. I, I agree, one infection can cost more than a boroscope. Um, my real question is to you, do you think all infections are being reported? For me, when I hear this statement, the boroscope costs too much. For me, it's the decision if you or your facility decides to take on procedures or other procedures that could benefit from the boroscope. You know, if your facility decides to start doing these procedures, then you should be prepared to utilize the equipment needed to do those procedures, right? So if you decided one day at your facility you were going to do robotic procedures, you wouldn't do them without buying the robot, would you? We're going to do robotic procedures, but we're not going to buy a robot. I mean, it's, it's a little out there, but I think you get what I'm saying is, you know, if you're going to do GI procedures, then... You know, you need to do what it takes to clean them properly. So buy the equipment. Seems silly to me that you would expect to go in and do something, but not buy the equipment. You know, it's like upgrading the operating room and not buying new instruments or additional instruments or, you know, additional sterile processing staff or, uh, you know, you increase your, your OR uh, capabilities and you don't do anything in sterile processing. It's kind of that same thought, right? Here's another scenario. So my nephew was scheduled to have a lesion removal from his tongue. It was on the tip of his tongue, just a simple lesion. I think the lesion, I think it was about probably, it was less than three, three millimeters, right? Guess how much it was going to charge. Guess how much the hospital was going to charge for this procedure. This is outrageous. All right, listen up. The hospital was going to charge $55,000. Right? $55,000 minus the the 3,000 for insurance. So, out of pocket, this removal of a simple lesion probably take 30 minutes on the operating bed. Right? The removal of this simple lesion was going to cost $52,000. So if you really wanted a boroscope, just do a, a lesion removal and you'll have uh, plenty of money to buy a handful of boroscopes. Problem solved. All right, moving on. What about this one? It takes too much time to use the boroscope. Now, this is a good one. I love this one. Too much time to use the boroscope. Now, I'll be honest. I don't know the average time it takes to use a boroscope. Is it one minute, two minutes, three minutes? Is it an average of those? I'm not sure. Let's look at how much time the standards say to dry an endoscope. Here's the wording. Flexible endoscopes with channels should be dry for a minimum of 10 minutes with pressure-regulated forced air instrument or a minimum HEPA-filtered air. Yada, yada. <laughs> okay. So, 
every time I hear this, drives me crazy. Every time I hear this, in my mind, this is what I see. I see a technician standing in front of an endoscope with an air gun in his hand, holding it up to each channel, standing there, watching the clock, 10 minutes later, moving that air gun to the next channel, looking back up at the clock, and just daydreaming about a better life. You know, that's what I see every time I hear the statement, you know, you need 10 minutes of dry time with these scopes. Now, I'm not disputing that we need 10 minutes to dry it. Uh, you know, there are articles that say that we need to remove the moisture and, you know, 10 minutes, uh, I believe was one in one of the articles. Not disputing that. I'm just saying, you know what? 10 minutes drying these scopes, ain't nobody got time for that. Now, all that was a little exaggeration on my part, right? But really, the time it takes to make all that happen, you know, drying the endoscopes, if you have an automatic dryer and you got to hook them up, each of the different ports, you know, all the time it takes to do that, you know, how many times can you have inspected a boroscope? I'll be honest, you probably could have done it uh, more than once, right? So saying that time is a big factor when inspecting a boroscope, I, I don't think is really valid uh, for me. And then the last statement, and probably one of my most favorite comments. Technicians who use a boroscope do not know what they're looking for, or if they find something, they won't know what they're seeing. Now, admittedly, I have never used a boroscope in a clinical setting. But with training, you know, I'm confident that I could become proficient in using this device. I'm not aware of any person that one day said, hey, I want to be a surgeon and just decided to walk into an operating room and start performing surgery. Unless they stayed at a Holiday Inn. Now, I know, I know there's probably some weird person out there that has done this. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say they're outliers. But my point is that all surgeons train to be surgeons. They don't just do it. You know, just like the GI physician, he trains and practices moving the scope through the different sections of the bowel, looking for landmarks, identifying areas of concern, taking biopsies to analyze tissue. You know, they all started at a point. They all started from the beginning and learned their craft. When I worked as a surgical tech, I worked with hundreds of residents, and I can tell you, none of them were perfect. Not one. They were there for training, they were there to learn how to do the procedure. So just as a surgeon learns to perform the surgery, absolutely a technician can learn to use a boroscope. Right? Technicians can learn to identify scratches, to identify moisture, to identify something that is curious. Now, now I think that, you know, sometimes you're going to run into something that you don't know what it is. And I think that's okay. I would rather, you know, point that out, have that checked, than use that on a patient. All right. So that is my rant today. Something to think about. And that's all I have for you 
That's what's on my mind. Like I said earlier, today our guest speaker is Marie Brewer. Now, Marie is a sterile processing expert with 20 years experience in sterile processing and in the perioperative setting. She is the regional sterile processing manager at Unity Point Health, St. Luke's Hospital, Finley Hospital, and Jones Regional Medical Center. Marie has served as the president of the HSPA Central Service Association of Iowa and in national HSPA roles. She's a voting member on the Amy ST79 and a subject matter expert on sterilization, sterile packaging, disinfection practices, and device processing. She is a columnist for the HSPA, the process magazine specializing in advanced leadership concepts in sterile processing, and her work has been published in AGIC, the Infection Prevention Journal. Marie, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you work, what you do? Yeah. So um, born and raised in Minnesota, the Twin Cities. So after graduating college, I worked in the level one trauma centers in both Minneapolis and St. Paul as a surgical technologist. Um, I moved into the ambulatory setting and then also small hospital after that um, in all of these areas I worked in SPD as well as surgical technologist and first assistant. And about 12 years ago, when I moved to Iowa, I moved into full-time SPD management. Well, it's nice to hear another scrub tech. I'm also a former scrub tech. Absolutely. I'm in good company. So you were involved in the 2021 Droplet Dispersals and Decontamination Study. So how did you first get involved with the Ofsted and Associates in conducting this type of research? We had two exposures on our team where um, our technicians were exposed to contaminated uh, sink water. And both of them, they were wearing appropriate PPE, following all IFUs and industry protocols, AME guidelines, all of those things where we had um, water come up from the sink, bounce off their chest, ricochet off their visor and into their eyes. And we had Mm. this happen twice with two different types of devices. Once we were spraying instruments. The other time we were placing kind of a slippery ureteroscope into the sink, and then we had that water come up. And so that water obviously has chemistry in it. Mm -hmm. We know that our our sink drains are are, are hotbeds (laughs) for germs (laughs) and different things. So our folks had to go through quite a bit of testing, and um, that was very stressful for them um, to go through all of that work. Uh, We worked with PPE companies and our own internal safety leaders. We really weren't able to mitigate the risk. And as such, we really weren't, we weren't comfortable with that answer. The team wasn't comfortable. And so when I hit that roadblock, I decided to reach out to Corey and just tell her, I need to do some experiments and I need some help from a scientific perspective to learn how to do that. And so um, she partnered with us to teach us some basic elements of how to begin and how to work through those. So can you kind of describe the process you went through to allow the study at your facility? Because some people just can't, you just can't have people come into your facility. So 
Well, the first thing I would say is we were in the middle of COVID when all this happened, oh, right? Yeah. And so that was published in 2021, but we submitted. And when we were working through this, it was at the height of the beginning of the pandemic. And mm. so Corey was not able to be on site with us. Um, we had a fantastic technician named Justin Hines, and he has a degree in production, um, video production, different things. So he was able to actually rig up a system where she and her colleagues could be present via video live and be documenting. But to your original question of how do we get that through, we have a process called EBI where it's an evidence-based review that happens with not only our hospital, but an unaffiliated hospital down the street where we weigh any potential um, implications to patients. So while this one didn't impact patients, we still roll through that process. Okay. Great. So can you give a brief overview of just how you participated in this study for our folks? Absolutely. I was the guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. So uh, I was the one working at the sink. Um, my team and I got together and we worked through several different scenarios that we thought um, could cause or generate splash or aerosolization. Gotcha. And so from there, um, we talked to Corey. We broke down the different areas we wanted to try experiments with. Okay. And then she helped us organize that and facilitate it. Great. Hey, let's pause our conversation for just a second. Are you looking to get a CE for this episode? Well, you are in the right place. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, log on to the MyHSPA website, and make sure you use the code SPLASH. Again, the code for this episode and only this episode is SPLASH. Now, back to our conversation. So there were several different tests performed during the simulation mm -hmm. cleaning. Which tasks produce the greatest amount of splashing and droplet dispersal? Using the sprayer. The sprayer, okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And was that just on, like, uh, any particular instrument or just, you know, really was it just continuing through, you know, the similar to whatever you were cleaning? We found that the item that generated the most um, spray was spraying out a stainless steel basin. Altogether, it sounds like it was just a, you know, that yeah. sprayer just causes splash anyway. It so. does. But even brushing a scope, I was, I was visibly soaked after brushing a scope. Yeah. So even a scope. Great. Mm -hmm. One of the things that this study found, it, it showed that droplets landed, you know, in this study five feet away from the cleaning area. Mm -hmm. And now there's even another study or even more evidence that suggests that droplets will even go further than seven feet, yes. right? In, in real world cleaning. So would, does this surprise you at all? No, it really doesn't just because even looking at our walls and decontamination, you know, we're all supposed to be cleaning those yeah. on a regular basis. And I see droplets on the wall that shouldn't be there. <laughs> you know, you could yeah. see the residue of the enzymatic, kind of that white powdery. Yeah. And I would also note that, you know, the moisture detection paper we used that showed droplets. That didn't actually show the mist or, you know, how far does that actually go? Gotcha. So we're, we're talking, it could be even, I mean, seven feet, it doesn't, we don't know yeah. how far this yeah. could actually be. Especially when some of them are higher up. So, you know, they still have, you know, the, the arc to travel. <laughs> the trajectory. That's right. Thank and, you. Yeah. That's, that's a better way to say that. When the cleaning simulation was being conducted, what, in your opinion, was the least protected area when wearing PPE, personal protective equipment? Under the chin and the neck. 
under the chin and through the neck. So after the study was done, did you do anything to make those changes? We really focused on some tactical changes in our environment. We also did a lot of work practice changes because we can't control some pieces, but there's many things we could do with ergonomics and efficiency. We were blessed with height adjustable sinks, and so we adjusted the height of the sink to match the tech. And then each technician, depending on the length of their arms, they may be working with five gallons of water, they may be working with 10, they may be working with 15. But in the end, we sort of worked on a little bit more customized program for each technician. So were there any other changes that you made besides PPE, besides the sinks? Were there any other changes that you made as a result of this study? Absolutely. Uh, we added aerosolization risk to our orientation. And so mm. that becomes something that we do uh, a lot more in-depth uh, review of that because that's not something that is always easily understood. And so we need to make that visible and realistic for our technicians, for them to understand the risks so they can mitigate it with their work practices. Sure. Um, we instituted fit testing for PPE in the beginning of the orientation so that okay. if we have a diverse workforce with different you know, needs for PPE, that gives me a few weeks to get it in, get it tried on, and make sure that it fits our, our epic humans in DECATAM. Right. Um, we did quite a bit of changes with work process in general. So, and really outfitting that to each technician. Uh, the other thing we stopped doing was a lot of spraying, using more of opening our instruments, putting them into the enzymatic, allowing that to work, and then have to change our water more frequently, clearly, oh, yeah, right? Sure. But letting that enzymatic do most of the work for us. Okay. We also have a built-in sonic in our sink to help as well. Oh, nice. We changed our detergent to a clear chemistry and that also helped us with depth perception and not having to lift the instrument out of the water to see it okay like intuitive arms so were there any other lessons learned from this study i think the most important lesson that we learned as a team and i learned as a leader is that when we hit a roadblock we don't need to stop especially when we're dealing with the safety of our technicians and ourselves so you know i did not have an avenue I chose to reach out to Corey, which was great, but um, had Corey not been able to help me, I would have reached out to other industry leaders, other SPD managers, to try to work on the things that we can change to make it safer. Because yes, the PPE doesn't exist right now that we need. We're retrofitting striker <laughs> hoods, but those are heavy, especially when you're working at the sink and you're looking down. Sure. That can lead to some neck strain, so you got to rotate your staff a little bit more. But what I really want to encourage, if nothing else comes of this study besides awareness, I'd like to try to develop a little bit more of a community approach to work together as a team to improve safety for our own techs with our work practices. A couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast and I talked to some folks who, who implemented a hood system yes. in sterile processing. With the, um, the striker or hood? Yeah, the striker hood. Absolutely. And it was with the that VA was cool. Folks. And in talking, I don't know if you're aware of this, they started and implemented because of this study that you got, that you started. So thank you. I, you're, you. What you're doing is helping our folks. And so I, you know, I just wanted to say thank you and appreciate what you did in starting this. And you know, because of this study and what you started out, there's another study, as as some folks do know, that you know just further reinforces that evidence. So again, uh, thank you and thank you for sharing on the podcast today. You're welcome.
Well, folks, that music can mean only one thing. And again, I'm sorry to say we are out of time for today. Again, a big thank you to Marie for sharing with us on the show. HSPA episode number 91 is in the books. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. And as always, stay classy, folks, and we'll see you next time.